Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County in Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is on special assignment today. She's taking care of her young daughter who is under the weather and a lucky little girl because her mother is a nurse practitioner, and so she is getting the best of care from a PCP right in her own home. And we wish you well and hope to see her in uh, just a couple of weeks for the next one or two WellMed Radio shows. We are joined today, I am pleased to say, by... Dr. Anil Mangala, he is an associate professor of biomedical science and research at the new UIW Osteopathic Medical School. He also is director of public health and research there and is doing a lot of great outreach into the community, and we will talk about that. We've had him on before, always a great guest, and Anil, good to see you. Good to see you, Ron. It's a pleasure being here. Now, tell us a little bit. We've talked before about Uh, the UIW Osteopathic Medical School, but it's been a while. School is now in its third year? Yes, we will be getting our third cohort uh, in July. So we have uh, two years of cohort students that are almost ready to take the board exams. And those students will go out into the community with a real sense of community service. Right. So the goal and mission of our school is actually looking at community engagement where uh, these learners, as we call them, are in the community doing work in the community more towards the social determinants of health. And I think one of the neat things, uh, they barely are wet behind their ears day one as an incoming medical student, and you've already got them ready to go into the community on a variety of projects actually touching human beings. Right. So, you know, the the, the curriculum we have is very different from many other schools. Uh, We call it an integrated curriculum where they study on case base. So within a case, you know, we add in social determinants of health. We add in biochemistry. We add in, um, you know, most clinical um, aspects. So from day one, they're already getting an experience of how to identify and diagnose real cases. More important than that, um, the way we have this set up is, you know, for them to go in the community. But their first few months, they actually mandatory got to start a um, EMT course. So once they're done in the three months, they registered EMTs and then start the medical work. So you get them out on ambulances? Absolutely. Yes, so they already get in that first-hand experience uh, within their first month of medical school. Why that approach? It's a different approach, but I think it's reality. You know, um, people can be book smart and then graduate, but they go into practice and it's the first time they're having their hands on a patient. This is very different. They get in already used to this type of uh, work, so when they go into their residency where normally first medical students have a patient-physician experience, uh, our learners are already getting that way ahead of time. Now, when you take a look at uh, the location uh, for the UIW Osteopathic Medical School, it was picked on purpose. Why? Right. So it was picked on purpose. The reason is we wanted to be a uh, medical school for the community, within the community. And when we looked at District 3, Um, You look at data analysis, District 3, there's large amount of disparities compared to the other districts, and we felt let's focus our efforts on District 3. Two reasons. Number one, uh, it's a smaller area, um, 120,000 individuals. But for us to do work within the community, we would be able to identify outcomes much easier because of the population. So you're located at the former Brooks Army Base, or Air Force Base, right? Yes. And the school itself puts students into the community. I know you've been doing vaccines. What other work? Right. So we're doing a, a multiple amount of work. Um, 
so there's two individual uh, faculty members. It's me, and I'll tell you what we I do, and then we have Dr. Hans Brontmeier, who does something different. Um, so what I started with is I have uh, four vaccine drives within a year. That has been a longitudinal, sub- sustainable effort for two reasons. Number one, we get vaccines from the federal government uh, by a program called Vaccines for Children. So this is at no cost for underserved populations or Title Ten schools. Uh, number two is we have these learners that are going to help us. So I don't have to get uh, nursing staff, physician staff. we got the learners getting that experience, first-hand experience already. And so that makes a big difference. And I can do these um, drives because I have, you know, number one, the vaccine at no cost. Number two, the location, which is ideal. And then number three is uh, the workforce. I want to find out more about that in a moment. For those of you who may have just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest today is Dr. Anil Mangala. He's got a doctorate, a Ph.D. in epidemiology, a master's in public health, and a whole lot more. And we're delighted to have him on the show today. Korajuk, our co-host, is off today caring for her little girl who's under the weather, and we wish both of them well. Uh, Dr. Mangala, so, so you're training these first-year learners, first-day learners practically, uh, to give vaccines? Absolutely. So they're, I, they're, they're giving shots to kids. Right. That's cool. Yeah, we're doing that, and then, you know, we're also training them on something that is very important, which is your um, keeping the data entry. So, you know, we in San Antonio have what's called the immunization registry, so does the state of Texas. Many physicians don't look at that and don't realize the importance. So what we're doing is getting them already trained now before they do anything of the importance of these registries. Now, why is that important? And it's important for many reasons. Number one is let's take this measles outbreak, right? So um, this would give us as healthcare professionals a very clear indication of who's got the vaccine, who has not. So it's, you know, just pulling this up on a computer. That's why entering these vaccines are important in the registry. Uh, Number two is you avoiding duplication of vaccines for their child. Uh, Some parents don't have their vaccine certificates come in, and if they're not in the registry, we have no idea what they had. And so this is something... You've got to do everything if you don't know. Absolutely. So it's saving them from a second dose of the same vaccine. Now, the measles outbreak that we are seeing is pretty frightening. And in fact, uh, I was talking uh, uh, to my wife the other day uh, who had uh, the measles vaccine, but years and years and years ago. And the question is, should adults get a booster shot? Depending on the high risk they have, they could get a booster shot. But if you've had your vaccines as a, as a child, you're pretty fine with it. So as an epidemiologist, the first thing we would do in an outbreak, and that will give you an example, is um, assuming an outbreak is within a school, uh, the first step is identify who's vaccinated and remove them from the pool because they will not be at risk. And then the second part you mean is... statistically remove them from the pool. Right. <laughs> You're not taking them out of school. No, no. Uh, remove them right. knowing that, you know, they're pretty safe and they will not get infected. The rest of the students in the schools are going to be two possibilities. Number one, get the vaccine and monitor them for 12 days um, uh, under quarantine to make sure that they do not have the disease. Others that are not prepared to have the disease, we normally get them in isolation for that amount of time. And if within that quarantine period of time they get the uh, signs and symptoms, they get treated. You know, you hear people say in in the wake of this measles epidemic across the country, an epidemic that was never expected. We thought measles was something of the past left to undeveloped countries, not to the United States of America. And people say, hey, look, I had measles as a kid. I lived. Sure, it itched for a couple of days. Big deal. No, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, I think, Ron, you and I talked when I was the assistant health director for San Antonio. So even six years ago, we, it was pretty safe. 
Uh, we predicted already if we continue uh, the way we are with the anti-vaxxers, we're really going to get in trouble in this country. Um, we had one or two outbreaks, you know, four or five years ago. If you remember, one was at uh, Disney, and it was from a foreign child that came in was not, and got, you know, measles that got transferred to many other kids within that um, uh, park or recreational park. Um, so we predicted this years ago, and, and the key there was making sure everybody did get vaccinated. Vaccines work. We know it. So I don't think parents should kind of deny that fact and, and really focus on their vaccination. Uh, the anti-vaxxers who choose not to get their kids vaccinated put their kids at risk and are relying on something called the herd protection. What is that? Right. So herd protection is very important. And, and there's a number for very different diseases depending on their infectivity. When you look at measles, it's one of the highest infectivity rates, meaning that you can get measles just being in a room with somebody. Really? Um, it's, it's that infectious, right? So, so herd immunity, you need a number. So for 80%, 90% of individuals need to be vaccinated. So why is that important? It's important because you want to make sure if someone does get a uh, measles, there's two things that happen. The first thing is there may be some kids that really cannot take vaccinations due to their um, resistance, immune, immunity, uh, or even just uh, allergy. So you want to protect those kids. So if you have an immunity from all these other kids, then you're going to protect that individual. But if you're not giving vaccines to your own kid, that's a high risk for everybody else. So you're not putting your own child at risk, but you put in the child's or you put in the kids that really can't have vaccines at risk. So explain to folks, what is the uh, concern about measles? So the concern is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a disease that is terrible with rash. Um, kids go through very high fever. Um, there is a fatality rate on it. So, you know, all this can be prevented just having the vaccines or the MMR given at an early stage. That's measles, mumps, and rubella. Right. And mumps, are they coming back? We see a few internationally. We don't see much mumps here locally. But again, it's the same phenomenon like uh, measles. You know, once this gets started, these outbreaks occur all the time. So uh, we still encourage people to get vaccinated if they have not got vaccinated because there's always a, a follow-up schedule which many parents could talk to their uh, pediatricians and do that. And what is rubella? That's again, it's almost like, the, you know, we call it German measles and so forth. So it's a very similar disease, but again, you know, very painful, high fever. And because of high fever, there could be a lot of hemorrhage and so forth going on. High fever is dangerous. It's dangerous, yeah. So kids go through almost 103, 104 uh, Fahrenheit, which is pretty high. As an epidemiologist, uh, and, and for folks who don't know, epidemiologists count noses. Absolutely, yep. We we count is and um, the way we the way we work is a number is a person, and so you know we don't look at just numbers and rates. We really focus that that's an individual and that's an individual we can save. If you look at the uh, concerns in in Texas, especially where uh, so far we remain an opt out state, parents can say, "Nah, I don't want my kids to get." vaccinated. There seems to be, fortunately, speaking personally, a push now to require no matter what vaccinations. Absolutely. Unless there's a medical threat to the child. Right. So that's the key. If there's a medical threat, then, you know, we would understand. But um, I'm a very firm believer and a strong believer that everybody should get vaccinated. It should be something that is mandatory. The reason is it works. Look, we actually eradicated smallpox. It was a nasty disease, but because of vaccination that had occurred, right? Why can't we do that for the other vaccine-prevented diseases? I, can, I mean, all this can be prevented if parents would just understand that vaccines are safe. 
we did eradicate smallpox, but is that virus hanging around somewhere? Smallpox is only, there's, there's a vial of smallpox, I, we believe one with Russia and one at the CDC. And those are kept in a vault as an emergency. If something ever erupts, then we have those to actually make an antidote. And if, if you look at uh, the ability, in that case, to eradicate uh, a, a disease, vaccinations uh, meant smallpox could not replicate itself. No. And so what happened? It just gave up and went away? So we vaccinated. I don't think viruses ever did that. So what happens in virology is uh, these viruses always need a host. Let's talk more about that in just a minute. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest today, Dr. Anil Mangala Korjuk, our co-host on special assignment. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. And if you want to hear more of our shows, WOMED Radio and Caregiver SOS on air, we make it easy. Either listen on air, Sundays at 5 and 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer, or podcasts are available at no cost. Just go to Google Podcasts, available on iTunes and Spotify as well. And you can hear any of our shows and check back on ones that uh, you particularly found interesting and informative. Well, we hope all the shows are. And then share that with a friend, a neighbor, a family member, so you can help spread the word about good health and medical practices. I'm Ron Aaron Korajuk. Our co-host is home taking care of her little baby girl, and we wish them well. I'm sure she'll be fine. She's got a mom who is a nurse practitioner. So, Cora, you're now a PCP in your home. Dr. Anil Mangala is our co-host today. He is uh, uh, an associate professor of biomedical science and research at the uh, University of the Incarnate Word Osteopathic Medical School, director of public health and research as well. And we were talking about vaccines. And before we move on uh, to another important topic with Dr. Mangala, uh, I want to finish up with the whole vaccine question. Uh, and what you've been doing at uh, uh, University of the Encounter Word Med School is providing free vaccines uh, in District 3 where there's a large, low-income population, kids at risk. Absolutely. These are kids at high risk. Many don't have a PCP, so when it comes to needing vaccines, they no- normally need to travel to the medical center. Now, you've got to remember that you know many of them, number one, have no access to care. Number two, they don't have access to transport. And number three, they don't have access to the type of knowledge. Uh, we provide all that to them at the locations we, uh, we do the vaccination drives. And what we do is we normally do these within the school district, at the school. So many parents have been very fortunate. And not only that, parents have started to come every year knowing that this is something that is sustainable and we're doing it every year. So as our years are increasing, this is going to be our third year, we have already seen a significant increase year by year. And not just that, the in most vaccination. in vaccination. Not, and we actually write in a publication on this. But the most important thing, what we have seen is uh, our refusal rate on certain of these vaccines has actually gone down. And we have been, uh, I'll give you an example of HPV. The refusal rate for HPV with parents is about 30, 40% in Texas. We are showing 3% refusal rate. 
And so that's, that's you know, unheard of, right? But the way we're doing it with the students, the, the, the type of logistics we put into place, uh, it's working. And the parents are very, um, you know, satisfied with these uh, missions we're doing because it's helping them with um, access, it's helping them with the education, and it's helping them financially. HPV is for? HPV is uh, for cancer prevention. Uh, there was, you know, concerns many years ago because it, it they felt it promoted sexuality, which is not the it's case. It's nonsense. It's not absolutely nonsense. So, so we focused our effort on showing parents how in other countries, I'm going to take, for example, Australia, their rates in cancer decreased significantly, but they made this almost mandatory years ago, right? So, so it works. That's kind of the way we are trying to educate parents of, you know, you can avoid 10 to 12 different cancers in your child uh, in the coming 20 years, right? So this is kind of long-term. Uh, give them the vaccination today and they'll be safe. And it's not just for girls. And it's, it was initially just girls. Now it's actually the CDC recommendation is both uh, genders, yes. As you take a look at that population, uh, where your school is located, where you have worked from a time when you were with the Metro Health Department, uh, you've seen something that uh, if you don't venture to the south side of San Antonio, uh, you don't realize. It's a food desert. Oh, absolutely. You know, that is, that is kind of the key um, Number one, it's a food desert, um, and many of the big grocery stores are actually shutting down. Uh, so In those neighborhoods. In those neighborhoods. So what we've seen, and this is research that we had done, uh, there's a manuscript that we already submitted, showing very clearly uh, that, number one, there's a high need for fresh produce. Um, that would save them from a variety of uh, chronic health uh, ailments. And so if they're not getting fresh produce, they're not going to get to that wellness. Uh, we also did a study, when I say we, is Dr. Schlenke and I, kind of really showing very clearly that... He was the former director. He was a former the director. Metro Health. Yes. That if we reduce sugar A1C by 1% point, uh, we would save San Antonio $400 million in 20 years. How does that relate to saving dollars? A1C is a test that measures uh, the risk of diabetes and whether you have diabetes. Right. So when you de- so any number 6.5 and above, you kind of you you got know, it. diabetic, right? Yes. So we want to make sure that we could decrease that number. There's two ways of doing it, treatment and lowering that A1C by exercise and diet. And we try to focus on ed- education and nutrition and diet because there was zero cost to it. So many researchers have identified that if we uh, look at the social determinants of health, right? So in the social determinants of health, it's been identified that a wellness of a person is only associated to 20% of treatment. The other 80% is your social determinants, where you live, where you play, what you eat, your physical exercise, your family uh, background. So we started focusing on that part, right? That's 80% of someone's wellness. And that's how we came to this number of $400 million because due to diabetes, uh, you're going to get renal failure, you're going to get blindness, you're going to get uh, amputations, you're going to get heart disease, you're going to get stroke. And we can decrease every one of these chronic diseases just by exercise and diet. And providing access uh, to the foods that are not readily available in those neighborhoods? Right. So a lot of research have shown three important indicators that lack in these neighborhoods. Number one is uh, affordability. Number two is access, and number three is education. Uh, We at the University of the Incarnate Word School of Osteopathic Medicine have found a solution, and we actually are implementing the solution, uh, hoping to get some outcome measures within the next three months. So what we have done is made this affordable 
made it accessible and Fruits giving and them and giving them knowledge in that in that district three community. Tell me in a minute how you do that. If you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on nine thirty AM the answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Cora Juke, our co host, is on assignment today, taking care of her baby girl, and we hope that everyone heals quickly and she will be back with us in a couple of weeks. Dr. Anil Mangala is our Special guest today on WellMet Radio, Associate Professor of Biomedical Sciences at the University of the Incarnate Word School of Osteopathic Medicine, also directs the school's public health and research programs. We're talking about an initiative launched by UIW Med School into the uh, neighborhoods in the third council district, trying to make access to low-cost fresh fruits and vegetables a possibility. Now, you found a, an owner of a couple of convenience stores to partner with you. Right, so how we started this is we're working very close with um, Councilman uh, Viagran, who I'm glad is re-elected again. So uh, we will be working with her very close on many of these projects. So the one of the projects we found is how do we provide access and education and affordability to uh, the District 3 individuals? And we started... Uh, it took some time and a lot of thinking. We initially looked at a voucher system and provide vouchers to families. Families would come into the corner stores and redeem those. But there was going to be a problem in reconciling and accountability. So we went to the next step. And the next step was we made an application form for every corner store in District 3. So everyone was invited to apply. Um, we got many applications, and then um, Councilman Viagran and us, we, we mapped those out to make sure strategically we covering the entire district. Uh, once that was done, we approached those individuals to see if they wanted to participate. Many were very supportive and, and, and uh, wanting to support the community. And so what we did is once that got established, we started working with the wholesalers and felt that the wholesalers would give a certain amount of discount to the store owner. So they get this fresh produce at a reduced price. And so they can actually mark it up and provide it at a reduced price for the um, consumer. So two things are important here. The store owner doesn't lose anything yet he can supply it at a discounted cost. And they all work on very small margins, so they can't afford to give it away. Exactly. There's very small margins. So with this system, they can increase their margins. So it's a, we want to make sure that it's a benefit to them. With the grant we have, what we do is we subsidize the wholesaler so the wholesaler doesn't lose out. And at the end of the day, who's gaining is the consumers because they're getting these fruits and vegetables at a reduced cost. So we have two major outcomes. So, so someone may ask, how do you know it's successful? We how know do you know it's successful? <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Um, so there's two measures we looked at, and, and, and very easy, very straightforward. So the measure one is we have a baseline of how much fruits and vegetables have been sold in the community. And this is by pounds. So pounds sold. With this new system, all we're going to measure is, again, the pounds sold after this has been implemented. So what we want to see, hopefully, is it increases. But the second measure we want to do is make sure that the wastage within the stores decreases. And if the prices are you know, reasonable, they're not going to get much wastage. So how do we monitor this? So we get the exact pounds that is going into the store. We have a third-party um, company that actually collects the waste. So then we know exactly what number is going into the community. And so that waste is fruits and vegetables that haven't sold that are spoiled. It's spoiled, yeah. And so we measure that number and so the balance is something that has gone into the community. So all we want for this, f this phase one is increase, product, increase the amount of pounds sold, decrease the amount of pounds of wastage, and wait for six months to see how that turns out. Phase two will be then uh, a little more 
advance in starting to measure certain amounts of, um, you know, maybe lipid profiles or A1Cs and starting to see if this is impacting the health, especially diabetes. So for those who are cynical, how do you get folks to break the habit of a big red and chips versus a fresh fruit and vegetable serving? How do you get them into the stores? How do they begin to feed that to their children? Because children learn by what their parents feed them. Right. So that's, that's an excellent question. So the one part of this project that I have not talked about yet would kind of cover the question you have. So number one, what we have done is we've made it affordable. Number two, we have made it accessible. And the third one was knowledge. So we're working very close with the food bank, and the food bank would be doing cooking demonstrations in each of these stores. They will also be doing cooking uh, lessons at the South Side Independent School District, uh, which we work very close with. So this gives the parents on a parent night or certain evenings when parents get together, we'd be doing these demos to really show the parents, okay, this is the vegetables you have or this is the fruits you have. Here's the cultural correct way to cook these in a healthy way yet be tasty. So that knowledge is already starting to go out, and the knowledge is not just going to be at the parents' events, but also the kids are going to learn this in uh, demos that we will be providing in schools. Well, we know if you get kids to ask for something, that'll drive it. McDonald's learned that a long time ago. If you get the kid to say, I want to go to the arches, parents usually will give in. Absolutely. So if Junior says, I want to, you know, why don't we have peaches or oranges or apples or uh, okra, whatever. Although I I don't know a kid who'd demand okra, but hey, you never know. Well, you know, think of it in this way. I mean, you know, parents have not afforded any of these luxuries. I call it luxuries for them because it... Number one, there's not enough stores that keep it. And number two is culturally buying what they grew up with. So I think educating the parents is, or giving them the opportunity with accessibility is number one. But, I mean, training these kids is the main thing. We want to do, we, you know, the whole goal of our school and the mission is let's look at everything upstream. If we can help anybody upstream which is all preventative, we're able to actually decrease many of these chronic health diseases here in, in, in District 3 and San Antonio eventually. Now, I know it's still early on in this uh, initiative, but anecdotally, have you seen uh, any kind of response from the community? Right. So what we are looking at is our first so-called uh, data to the community, a press release, will be held end of this month. That way we'll have at least preliminary data for month one. And that will kind of suggest where we want to go and how this is working. Give you an idea of where the need is to educate. Exactly. I mean, this education is key. And so that's also one of the key um, you know, components we will be really working on. Uh, again, being cynical, how do you know the stores are following through and the wholesalers are following through? So, again, that's... Um, A question that we have looked into. And so, number one, the wholesalers are going to follow through because they're going to be the ones that are supplying these stores. And all we require from them is a receipt or an invoice so we can pay them back, uh, refund them for the discount they've given the store. So It's in their interest to sell more. Right. That's that. So that the accountability is perfect there, right? There, there can't be anything wrong. Uh, the second question um, is um, how do we know the stores are selling this at an appropriate cost or, you know, not going um, not against... Not jacking the price up. Not ag- against our recommended price. So many of our learners at the medical school... Uh, we've asked them to be secret shoppers. Uh, they'd be randomly going to these stores to buy certain of these vegetables. They take their white coats off before they go in. Absolutely. And then uh, provide us as a committee feedback on what they have seen. And so we have a so-called 
quality control component That's in cool. there. And so, I mean, I think we've, you know, we've thought of everything we could to make sure that uh, we have uh, accountability here and that we have um, proper reimbursement for each of the uh, facilities that we're working with. And part of the challenge is how they display the produce in the store. Are they rotating the items? Are they keeping it fresh looking? That's all into the marketing yeah. So the marketing side, if it was if any store participated with us, uh, we provided them at no cost. This was from another grant that the San Antonio uh, Food Policy Council received, and this grant enabled us to buy these stores refrigeration. Oh, and so. I, the key there was that they had to display that refrigeration, um, you know, in front of the store uh, with the fruits and vegetables that will be supplied by the wholesaler. So this is um, something that would bring in trade, as a matter of fact. So some people coming in just for, you know, gasoline uh, will see these prices mm-hmm. and really start, you know, increasing the uh, cons- consumption of fresh produce. Well, that's good to hear because we can all remember walking into a convenience store and you see three brown bananas and a rotten apple sitting at the counter. Right. So this is not something you're going to see. And, um, you know, we will be sharing at our first meeting uh, pictures, uh, discussions, and uh, also, you know, talking to the owners, which are very, you know, they are very proud and they are very committed in what they're doing, and many of them have told us they want to be part of the community, they want to help the community, and this is their way of uh, providing that service. That's pretty neat. Yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our special guest today, Dr. Anil Mangala. He is with the University of uh, the Incarnate Word School of Osteopathic Medicine and directs their public policy outreach program, their public health program. And we're talking about an outreach designed not only to increase consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables, but down and upstream, you're looking to reduce diabetes, to reduce the incidence of type 2, to get folks off medication. Absolutely. And that's the way, you know, we are doing it. If you look at diabetes, we're the epicenter of diabetes here in the country. Nothing Uh, to be proud of. Nope. And District 3, our numbers are even higher. Um, one in three almost is diabetic. So there's something we have got to do. We are seeing, as a matter of fact, an increase in the amount of dialysis centers. We've seen an increase in amputations, all related to diabetes. Now, you mentioned dialysis. That's because of kidney failure. Uh, you had mentioned to me off the air uh, about uh, the comorbidity between diabetes and kidneys. Right. So, I mean, they go hand in hand. As, as a diabetic... Um, you know, you slowly begin to lose your eyesight. Um, you go through kidney failure. Your nervous system does not work well on your extremities. So people start getting amputations on their fingers, and, you know, it goes up. And on your toes, eventually they get amputations right uh, up to the upper knee. And so our goal is how can we reduce the amputations, or even avoid amputations. So that is all upstream. We lead the country in the number of amputations in Bear County. Absolutely. We lead the country in, in San Antonio, but when it comes to these districts, we're even higher than just what you know San Antonio as a, as a base is. In District 3, it's higher. Absolutely. If they lose one leg, are they liable to lose the other? If they lose one leg, yes, the other, but also it normally starts with their toes and then the foot and then lower knee, upper knee. So it spreads very, very fast. And the way to combat that? way to combat is, is uh, again, social determinants of health, and I'm going to stress on it because, you know, if individuals, and the way we do in one of our projects is uh, we are working with a very... Um, dedicated and sincere um, vascular surgeon, Dr. Lisa Ochoa. And, and, and she and I have talked about this project um, six, seven years ago. 
And so what we're doing is we're working with her patients that are coming in for vascular surgery and seeing how we can actually follow them, provide them the most necessary needs, which is not just the treatment, but the 80% of the other essentials that are required for wellness, and that is the social determinants of health. And, and how responsive are the patients to these programs? Many are very responsive because two, two reasons. You know, nobody wants an amputation. It not just affects themselves, but it affects their family. And on a big global picture, it affects our economy. So if we focus on those individuals, and, and the way we are looking at this disease is more like an outbreak. As an epidemiologist, how I say it is, if a patient comes to a vascular surgeon, we call that an index case. And then we work with that case and their surroundings, meaning their family members and outer family members. So, so we develop not just work with one person, but the entire group of families. Why do you do that? And you do that because if you and a diabetic and if you are a diabetic by genetics, every family member of yours is prone to get it, or most of them, right? So why don't we start upstream and working with the 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds also so they don't ever reach that point of getting to a amputation or kidney failure? Try to reduce the incidence. Absolutely. And that is the key. That's the way to do it. So, so we're trying to already save the next generation, and that's the only way to do it is start now. You've mentioned several times social determinants of health, yep. and we've touched on that. Uh, you were telling me off the air that uh, there are a lot of folks who, who just don't understand, don't buy into that. Many don't because it's something that is new, and you know everybody wants to still focus on the traditional treatment. But... But medicine is going to a different area, a different field. Now, you think of it. As a physician, your patient comes in, you diagnose the physician or the patient, provide them treatment, and they leave your office. You never see them again. So you don't know what knowledge they have. You don't know are they in compliance. Are they looking after their wound? None of that till they come back or till they go to an ER. Our concept is very different. Our concept is almost providing them the care. And a care in the sense of, um, you know, almost like um, making sure that we following them, they get calls on a weekly basis, they get visits twice a month, uh, in making sure they're adhering to the drugs. If they have complications, we set up the appointment to go back to the physician. And so these are important factors that no one looks at after they leave their office. That's where the crucial part happens is, you know, nobody monitors what happens there. And this is a new way of doing it. The system has worked in Europe for years and years. So this is how we want to make sure that not just our students, when they become this new generation of physicians, they're going to understand what's beyond this office and not just, okay, here's a patient in my office. Let's prescribe them something and they leave. It's beyond that. And a lot of that fits into the philosophy of osteopathic medicine. Absolutely. And that's the kind Which of Which is the key. whole person. Yep. And you look at the whole person and this is exactly what we're doing. So, again, I normally have uh, numerous times talked about the mission. And that's a mission. It's the community enhancement community engagement and community service uh, that we offer uh, many of the uh, community industries. Let's, let's talk in just a moment about the Bear County Health Assessment. Uh, the new one is about to begin. I want to talk about the incredible and shocking results you found from the last one just a couple of years ago. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest, Dr. Anil Mangala, our co-host, Cora Juke, on assignment today, actually taking care of her kid at home. You're listening to WellMed Radio at 930 a.m., The Answer. 
Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS on air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, we appreciate you listening to Wellman Radio right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Dr. Anil Mangala, who is our special guest today, I want to remind you that you can listen to all of our WellMed Radio and our Caregiver SOS on-air programs via podcast. Just go to Google Podcasts, look for iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and all of our shows will pop up with a handy little description of what the topic is. And you are free to listen to those on your phone, on your uh, portable computer, on your desktop, whatever. And uh, you can download those shows and send them as well via email to friends and neighbors and relatives who you think would benefit from listening to one of those programs. We've been talking with Dr. Mangala about uh, some new initiatives from the University of the Incarnate Word Osteopathic School of Medicine, and we're talking about uh, social determinants now and the Bear County Health Assessment. It's about to begin again, looking at the status of health across Bear County and some of the surrounding counties. And Dr. Mangala, you participated heavily in the last round of Bear County Health Assessment, and I had mentioned early on you found what is just still so shocking, uh, just the disparity of longevity if you live north of he- uh, north of uh, Hildebrand or south of Hildebrand. Yep, so this, um, you know, I, I was very active in the um, San Antonio Health Assessment um, conducted by the Health Collaborative, and in the last assessment, we really identified, we looked at um, uh, death certificates, so very accurate data, and we looked at longevity with that. So uh, what we observed was if you lived north of Hildebrand, and, 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 and it was a very distinct line you could see, is your longevity or life expectancy was between 15 and 20 years longer compared to living south of Hildebrand. Um, this, was just, this was just an unreal, unbelievable disparity that we could see from north and south. So this clearly shows that, you know, disparities occur where you live, where you're born, where you play, where you school, where you, um, you know, work. And um, so we need to narrow that gap. So we did further studies on that um, I, um, data that we identified is we started looking at some of the social determinants of health. So we looked at poverty, we looked at access, we looked at number of physicians within those areas. And we just sent a manuscript for publication showing there was a significant, significant difference when we looked at number of physicians on the south side compared to the north side. Much fewer. Absolutely. And so that, that's already one disparity. The second disparity is what we just talked about, say, foot amputations. Um, foot amputations decrease your longevity, and you have you know, significant higher amounts in the south compared to north. Wow. So that's, again, an attributing component to longevity. So... The goal of our research is eventually narrowing that gap. Now, will we see it in the next 10 years? We don't know. But uh, if we start focusing on a variety of chronic health diseases, um, I think just looking at District 3, we can make a significant difference. 
Well, and good for the Bear County Health Collaborative for doing this work. Oh, yeah. I mean, we work all hand in hand. You know, um, data that we, the Health Collaborative is great in a sense of they got a huge database that we can work with. Um, this has been used for people writing grants, people talking to uh, the legislative sessions on policy, right? So I think that is very important. And the data we generate, we normally work with uh, HASA. And so HASA is, uh, you know, a component of uh, a uh, database system. What is HASA? HASA is the... Um, it's called the Health Accessibility San Antonio. Okay. So it's, a, it's almost like a data storage uh, facility. So everybody can share that data when they're looking at, you know, policies or they want to identify certain uh, hotspots in the city. We're about flat out of time. Uh, for the parents and uh, soon to graduate from uh, high school and college students who are listening, should they consider the UIW New Med School? Oh, absolutely. We have a, a, a variety of programs when you look at the medical school. We have a direct entry. That's number one. You can do a bachelor's degree, uh, undergraduate and bachelor's degree at UIW. And depending on uh, what pathway you go, uh, there's a direct admit pathway. If you do really well, keep a uh, you know, high GPA. Uh, you can get directly admitted even without going through uh, MCAT or any of these. Oh, I like that. Got to stop you right there. You can find more. Just Google UIW Osteopathic Medical School. you find all the info. Dr. Mangler, thank you for joining us on uh, WellMed Radio. Thank you, Ron. It's, it's a pleasure like uh, before to be here. We'll do it again. I'm Ron Aaron. This is WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.